Hi, this is Clark Datchler from Johnny Hates Jazz. And you're listening to the New Wave Podcast. Welcome to a special episode of Don't You Forget About Me, the New Wave Music Podcast. Uh, As always, I'm T-Bone, and I've got Steve here along with me. Uh, Today, we have the pleasure and honor to be joined by Paul Robb from the legendary band behind such hits as What's On Your Mind, Pure Energy. And walking away. Of course, I'm talking about the Information Society. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. We're really thrilled to have you with us. Thank you. Steve, I think you've got the first question. Well, how did the band name Information Society come to be? Or how was that named Information Society? Yeah, I mean, that's a new wave question for sure. Um, (laughs) You know, in the late 70s, early 80s, when we were in high school, there was a lot of talk about about technological change. And there was um, Future Shock by Elvin Toffler was a big thing. And um, the one of the things that was bandied about, one of the terms that was bandied about was information, the the coming information society. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as as part and parcel of a band that wanted to basically be to music what science fiction is to literature, oh. um, we thought that was a that was a great name. And uh, if only we had known how incredibly boring the information society would turn out to be maybe we would have gone a little more dark yeah, about everything but uh, yeah, no, I, hey especially with being kind of more of a synth band i think the name actually works perfectly yeah, no it works it works fine yeah but you know <laughs> when i think about our our romantic ideas our sort of uh sort of cyberpunk ideas of what the future was going to be like compared to cat videos and and you know <laughs> discord uh channels you know it's a pretty sad future <laughs> honestly <laughs> well you know getting back to the band itself how did you and the other band members get together we were uh we actually went to high school together <clears throat> we all uh, attended irondale high school in mm. new bright minnesota and we were uh, the first, second, and third most picked upon kids. Cool. Uh, Kurt Larson, our singer, was number one by far, and I was number two, and uh, James Cassidy was number three for for different, slightly different reasons. But you know, as a general category, because we we didn't uh, adhere to the norm. 
did you all did all three of you have a love of synthesizers and and that's why it brought that kind of element to the band that's interesting you should ask that um when i first met kurt larson his his uh, musical universe consisted primarily of the beatles and mm. sticks oh <laughs> and uh and james cassidy was a heavy metal bass player he was in bands in high school that you know that did a lot of like uh, 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 Black Sabbath covers and and he was in a Kiss tribute band. Uh, and you know, I mean, it, it's not like I was the 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 Messiah of New Wave or anything. I think I just um, I, I think I was exposed to it first. Huh. So for okay. myself, I came from a from a jazz and sort of a funk background. Uh, and then, and then I, you know, heard uh, Gary Newman on the radio, and then I accidentally picked up a Kraftwerk uh, album, and you know, after that, there was there was no going back. Um, and uh, and then Kurt became a a, a great uh, Devo disciple, um, and so you know, if you combine all of those uh, influences, it it's pretty easy to to you know get from there. To what information society became oh absolutely yeah no i can imagine all those little elements put together um information society kind of basically broke up in the late 90s then you reformed about a decade later what brought you all back together well uh, honestly we broke up informally uh in the early 90s in in 93 and it was just it was more of a life um you know, um, thing than a, than a professional thing. We were all really tired of New York and we were tired of, of our business, uh, network and we hated each other and we hated our manager and we hated our lawyer and we hated our booking agents and we hated our record company. <laughs> um, so we kind of exploded in 93 and I went to Minneapolis, uh, James Cassidy went to Portland and Kurt went to San Francisco and we were still in touch with each other. We were friends, but we didn't talk about band business at all. Um, and, and Kurt put out his solo record, which he, you know, which was called information society, but it was really just a Kurt, Kurt uh, Larson record uh, in 97. And then about, I want to say what, like five, six years after that, the cycle had, you know, like uh, the 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 wheel of the the wheel of Fortuna had spun a complete cycle, and suddenly people wanted us wanted to see us again. Oh. And you know, we were old enough to be a good memory, um, and but you know, and but not young enough in their memories to be kind of cringy. So <laughs> it, uh, I want to say nine oh five, oh four, something sometime around then. Um, we started getting requests for for live shows and all sorts of interest. Took some, you know, it took some talking, you know, because uh, at that time Jim Cassidy was had just become a professor uh, at the University of Oregon, or uh, sorry, Oregon State, and uh, Kurt had just gotten some highfalutin job as a, um, uh, a, a sound guy for a video game company, but. Um, you know the call of of the stage is is hard to deny. Uh -huh. So uh, you know around 2005 we started doing shows again, 
And after a couple of years of that, um, it, it went from there to being, you know, sort of like, well, you know, this is not terrible. Why don't we try to do some original music again? And so, you know, ironically, the last, you know, the, the, the latter period of the band from, you know, let's say 2007 to now has been the longest uninterrupted period of productivity that, that we've ever, that we've ever had. I mean, granted, on a much smaller scale, it's not like we're, we're nationally exposed or internationally exposed necessarily uh, in, a, in a major label way like we were before. But, uh, but by, the, by the same token, uh, it's more healthy for us and we're enjoying it more, I think. You did have a, a mega hit, What's On Your Mind, on your first album. Did that surprise the band or did you guys have a feeling that maybe you were onto something with that track? Well, yeah, what happened was um, we recorded we recorded the song Running. Believe it or not, in 1984, and it went through a, a number of, you know, birth pains involving remixes and, and re-recording of the vocals and this and that and the other thing. And finally came out on Tommy Boy in 85. And uh, based on the strength of that, we started doing shows in on the East Coast, you know, up and down the East Coast. And uh, we got we got a, um, a budget from Tommy Boy slash Warner Brothers to make an album. We got signed, you know, we got a major label deal, which is what everyone wants to get. And it took us a while to kind of find our sea legs in that in that world. As a matter of fact, the first we we did four or five songs and and the president of Tommy Boy and the AR guy from Warner Brothers flew out to Minneapolis to basically break the news to us that we were terrible. And <laughs> The words that they used were, were actually, it's not competitive. It's not competitive, homie. <laughs> but but they said, on the other hand, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna double your budget and we're gonna we're gonna give you a budget to bring in a producer. So we brought in uh they brought in uh Fred Marr, who was had been a member of Scritty Politi and mm-hmm. Material. If you're a true new waver, you'll you'll know about material in New York, yep. uh, and we we really hit it off. And once I started working with, I flew out to New York early on my own to start doing pre-production with with Fred. And between the two of us, we were able to take this kind of inchoate blob of of formless grooves and turn them into real songs. And um, so at that time, um, that's when I started getting cocky. And so we knew, like, when, when, when What's On Your Mind started blowing up, um, it was a surprise to everyone. Like, the label, it was definitely a surprise to the label. And they had not printed up, an, uh, uh, printed up enough vinyl, which was the only uh, format in those days. And we would, go, we would be uh, scheduled to go to in-store appearances, the purpose of which is to get people to buy your vinyl and then you, then you autograph it. And there was no records in the store. And, and yet there would be crowds of people and, and we would have, you know, it was very spinal tap. So, <laughs> but 
but at that point, that's when I said, oh, okay, so here's my prediction. What's on your mind is going to go top 10. And then we're going to release another single. And I didn't know what it was. And that's going to go top five. And then we're going to release repetition. And that's going to go number one. Because I had this theory about heavy metal bands, like hair metal bands, which is they always have their first minor hit that's kind of like a rock track. But then their really big smash hit is always a ballad. Mm. Like yeah, I think you're right. Bon Jovi or Cinderella or any of these bands, you know, but it didn't actually happen that way. I'm afraid to say. So the answer to your question is yes and no. We kind of saw it coming and we're, and we're prepared for it. And yet we are also very surprised and we, you know, no one saw MTV coming in, in terms of how important it was going to be to bands in that era. Um, not, you know, including us. Did Paramount give you any pushback for the Leonard Nimoy sample? Oh, my God. You don't even know. This, <laughs> this is a, a legendary story, but I will I will recount it to you again. So we, we finished that album in 87, summer of 87, I think. That was just around the time the companies, the corporations, the record companies were starting to get hip to sampling and what a problem it was which is why, for instance, you still can't get De La Soul records on Spotify because there's so many uncleared samples on there that mm. no, no one can touch it. And, you know, people were just, you know, becoming familiar with the problem at that point. So the biggest, you know, we, we took care of a lot of our musical samples, but the one that caused the most, the, the ones, because there were, several dozen of them on the first record. The ones that caused the biggest problems were the ones from Star Trek. I, I remember sitting in on a meeting at the label where, where one of the label people said to another label person, we're not going to, we're not going to jeopardize our relationship with Paramount for one band. This is, you know, this is, this is a non-starter. So the record basically sat on the shelf for about six months and it could have been, could have been the end of, of our career before it even started. And then by complete chance, our A&R uh, manager, Kevin Laffey, who worked at Warner Brothers slash Reprise, was in a bar in, I, I, I'm not sure where it was, I want to say um, somewhere in the valley. And he was bemoaning the problem of his of his prize signing information society to someone <laughs> and saying, you know, now I can't get the record out because because of all these Star Trek samples. And at the same bar, I guess I want to say Burbank was probably where this happened. There was another guy sitting at the same bar and he said, what do you mean? What are you talking about Star Trek? And he said, yeah, there's a there's a lot of samples from Leonard Nimoy and, and Paramount won't. Uh, won't you know sign off on them they're gonna they're gonna kill the whole record because they don't it's not because they're against the the idea it's because they don't know how to deal with it and they think they should be able to make money but they don't they don't know how to make money off of this and 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 the guy who he was talking to turned and said well my name is adam nimoy and my father is named leonard nimoy and i'm gonna talk to lenny and see what he has to say about this so he went to his father and he said, there's, there's these, all these dumb kids and they're making this record and they sampled your voice and now they're, they're being killed by the record labels. 
What are you going to do about it? And Lenny says to his eternal, uh, you know, to, to our eternal gratitude, he says, if if Paramount won't um, won't approve these samples, I will re-record that that line, pure energy. Wow. Nice. For them. That's all it took. And then and the roadblock, you know, the 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 whole blockage was cleared. And I mean it it still kind of it led to a, a lot of troubles for us and a lot of money down the drain because we had to pay money to every single person that we sampled. And that was pretty much everybody on the series, including all the uh union musicians, because we also used musical samples. So most of the money that we earned from that first record went off to other other places. But uh you know, we have to we have to um give a, a great uh deal of thanks to to Leonard Nimoy for for breaking that that log jam and, and enabling the record to come out at all. Well, thank goodness it was a huge hit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, as a matter of fact, I, I want to throw in another question here based on that. Out of the three of you, who is the one that chooses the different? Because on the new album, Odd Fellows, there's quite a bit of sampling of vocals or voices. Who's the one out of you three, or is it all three of you that choose those lines? I mean, traditionally, in, in sort of like the classic albums, uh, the sample master has been Kurt. Um, like all of those samples on the first you know, one or two or three albums um, came from Kurt's library. And and ironically, they almost all came from the same source, which was, I don't know how much in depth you want to hear about this, but we were living together in the summer of 1984. And all of our, our girlfriends both left town and we had nothing to do the whole summer. Both of us worked in parking lots. That was our job. We we sat there and took money from people who were parking. And it was a very low point in our history. And so all night, every night, we would watch TV and we had a, a boom box that we connected to the television and we just recorded all the TV. <laughs> Kung Fu, Star Trek, Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, all of those. It was the cheesiest you know, TV of all time. Um, and then after the fact, Kurt went and, and harvested all those samples and, and turned them in. You know, like, for instance, the pure energy sample wasn't even put into what's on your mind until pre-production. Because I went to New York with a bunch of discs from Kurt with all his samples. And I just started, you know, playing with them. Um so that's that's the ex explanation for the early years. Um in the in the more recent era. We kind of all participate in in picking fun samples for the songs because it's kind of a tradition for the band. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. When we talked to uh, Mike Connell and Doug McMillan of the Connells, they said that the the band, the Connells, had become more of a side project to their real life. What percentage of your time would you say is information society for you? Oh, I'd say we're in a very similar situation. I mean, less than 10%. Um, I mean, especially post COVID, you know, uh, you know, prior to, let's say 2020, we were doing a couple of weeks, maybe a month of worth of shows um, every year. And we were releasing a record every, let's say every three years. But um, 
you know, COVID kind of changed everything and, and we stopped playing out and we played one show last year in Colombia, South America. Oh, wow. We're going to play one show this year in the Dominican Republic. It's like a private, private, what, you know, one of those kind of things. Um, and maybe next year, you know, the, the thing is, I would love to have a sort of a farewell tour that, that encompassed clubs, like the kind of gritty clubs that we came up in and that we cut our teeth in, you know, like the 930 club in, in uh, DC and 7th street entry in Minneapolis and, and all those similar size clubs, because those were our, our best experiences live, honestly, much better than huge, you know, arena kind of shows. Um, but, but they're right in the sense that, it's been what it's been 20 years, 25 years now since we were making a living exclusively based on the band. So, you know, like I said, uh, James Cassidy is a professor now and he literally teaches three quarters a year of of the year. So it's hard for him to get away. Kurt Larson has his job doing uh, sound for, for um, video games and until very recently, I had my own company doing music for television. So, yeah, the band has been something a little bit more than a hobby, but but less than a profession. Your most recent album, Oddfellows, came out uh, last year in 2021. I imagine like most things that you're probably working on it maybe in 2020 when the pandemic hit. Did you have to re- adjust to re- record that album remotely or were you guys able to get together and get it finished? Yeah, well, you know, actually, it was um, the thing about the the way we've been working ever since, you know, since the 90s, really, is that we've done everything remotely. So production for, for the most recent, for you know, production for Oddfellows was no different than production for Hello World or, or Synthesizer before nice. that. Um, because of the fact that, as a matter of fact, now we even live farther apart. I live in New Hampshire now. Uh, and and Kurt lives in San Francisco, so um, it has always been the case that we've we've written these songs remotely, collaborated remotely, and then when it comes time to do the vocals, Kurt will fly down, uh, and we'll do the vocals together in the same room. So uh, you're well ahead of the game on this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, you know, it's all electronic music, so we don't really need to be in the same room at the same time. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's the way it's been for, for 20 years now. And so, um, the pandemic really didn't change our production process at all. Well, on your new album, the the song down in flames is one of my personal favorites. has a different feel or a different vibe than the rest of the tracks on the album almost kind of like a gary newman type on what he's kind of doing with his more most recent albums can you tell me what the influence was behind that song yeah i mean that's that song is um actually has been kicking around uh in my you know you know song library for for probably 10 years and we demoed it for ourselves um back in the o's um 
and we just never decided to record it until 20 probably 2019 actually is when we recorded that one um and and you're right it's it's definitely influenced to a certain extent by by the earlier gary newman kind of aesthetic um and uh you know it was one that we were able to agree on and the live drums you know that's probably what makes it sound a little bit different from a lot of our songs because that song you know used a drum you know a live drummer with a drum kit which is not something that we usually do but uh i think it worked for that song well, and the last two, uh, the last two Gary Newman albums actually kind of had that Arabian kind of sound to them. Yeah, yeah, with and, his like desert camo. Kind yeah, of, yeah, exactly. And that's what really stuck out for me on that song is that it really kind of has that same kind of tone to it. It's really yeah. an interesting change on the album. Yeah. No, uh, agreed. And as much as I, you know, I sh- I shouldn't say this because he's such a lovely human being but i don't love a lot of gary's recent work it sounds a little bit like nine inch nails light you know (laughs) like if a music library had a category called nine inch nails ish but (laughs) but not really (laughs) but but i know exactly what you're saying and and you know it's like i love him but i just i wish he would he was a synth God to me, mm-hmm. not a rock God. Yeah. And I wish he would, would stay true to that tradition. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the man and, and oh, the yeah. fact that he's so approachable and, and his family and he's so, he's such a sweetheart, you know, makes me hesitant to say anything bad about him, but he was so, it's kind of like Devo, you know, mm-hmm. like they were so, critically important in our musical development it's always it's always tough to see your idols grow or change you don't want them to change you know when i buy an enya album i want it to sound like enya damn it i don't want it to sound like anything else well i think that's why i like Oddfellows so much because even though there is a difference to it over the years it does have that familiar sound that you're you know familiar with well, thank you for for saying that, and uh, and I because I will say that that was that was one of our goals, both on On Fellows and on Hello World. Both of them were basically uh, sort of guided tours along the the, the spectrum of uh, of our sound, and you know it's not like you know exactly the same every time, but there's there's a there's a specific field that we play in. And I don't think anyone's interested in hearing us do anything other than that. You know, we're not going to be like Moby trying to trying to play guitar or, or whatever. <laughs> you know, nobody wants to hear that. It, and so, you know, we we have our we have our field, and and we want to, you know, uh, hoe those uh, those rows. You know, you mentioned that you've only done a couple of episodes. I'm I'm sorry, I'm thinking about the podcast. You've only done a couple of live shows recently in the past couple of years. Did you uh, play any of the new music uh, to those audiences and how did they react to them? You know, we play, we we try to put a a couple of new tracks in every show we do. And, you know, it's like, how can I say this? If I were to go see... Uh, I don't know, 
let's say let's say the B-52s. I want to hear music that they did in the early 80s. I don't care what they did in the 90s. I mean, Love Shack was cool. That's fine. But and and we know that. We understand that. Um and so, you know, it's interesting. It's like a it's like it's when you're a when you're a legacy band, the formula is different than when you're a new band. And I'm talking classical record business here, not whatever the hell is happening now with TikTok and whatever, which I don't understand and, and don't care to understand. But, um, you know, back in ye olden days, you would tour in order to support your record. So the idea is that you would go on tour and then people would see you and then they'd say, oh, I love them. I want to buy their record. But these days for a legacy band, releasing a record basically says, we're still alive and we're still making new music. So come see us on tour. Um, we don't expect you to know these songs word for word, like you would have known our hits, but that's okay because all we want you to know is that we're still making new music and you might like it. And so that's our approach to, to these new albums there. They are when, um, when I say new, I mean, in the last 10 years, um, they're in our, they're in our wheelhouse. And we think, as a matter of fact, you know, I think the last couple of albums are are our best albums that we've ever done. But in terms of pop music satisfaction, that that doesn't really mean that much. Well, you know, the reason that we, well, it's actually Steve that put this podcast together, and I, I was glad to join him, is because new material from those bands that we love just don't get that kind of radio airplay. And we, we wanted to see this, uh, this music get out to the masses. And I, you know, I totally understand where you're coming from on that, but these two, these last couple of albums, they stand up to your early stuff. And if people aren't familiar with it, I still think they could really enjoy the music on it because it's just so exciting. Oh, I, I mean, I, I can't help but agree with that. And I was just thinking as you were talking, you know, another example of a band like that uh, is uh, Erasure. You oh, know, yeah. They, they've, they've continued to produce new music, and it's not, you know, revolutionarily different from what they've done in the past, but it's, you know, evolutionarily different. And uh, it, it's fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. or OMD is another example. Oh, Yeah. You know, they've they've continued producing high quality work throughout. And, you know, they're not making top 40 singles anymore, but but that's not that's not the deal. So, Paul, when you are actually doing a live show, do you have a particular information say track that you enjoy performing live? I've never been asked that question before. That's <laughs> that's very interesting. Um, you know, I like the tracks where where we kind of jam, believe it or not which is not a, a thing that you associate with an electronic band, but um, for instance, um, Peace and Love Incorporated. The version that we do live is, is generally seven to eight minutes long. Wow. And, and we really go deep and 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 loud and obnoxious <laughs> on that uh and i like that and i like it depends also i'll say it depends on where we're playing so for instance in the states 
especially on the East Coast or in California, if we play running, people just lose their shit because it's considered an underground, you know, giant classic track for them. Whereas if we're playing in South America or in Europe, um, if we play repetition, it's repetition. I'm coming back to you. Repetition. The only thing I can do. People start crying. Oh. You know, because it's such an important song to them personally. Um, and so, you know, the, what we enjoy to a certain extent depends on where we're playing. And like, you know, I was saying like, I would love to do a, like a gritty club tour, you know, where we're doing the kind of, let's say 300 person capacity kind of clubs that we used to do back in the early eighties, because we could do kind of really gnarly shit that we used to do back <laughs> the day before we were a pop band. Uh, and and people might might enjoy it, and we wouldn't have to be like, oh God, we got to play the hits now, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know that kind of begs the question: um, Is the band's popularity more in the states, or is it more international? We're not international in the sense that Aha or Depeche Mode is international. Yeah. You know, there's there are very few territories, as as one says, that that can afford to to bring us over and pay us to play there um scandinavia spain japan south america that's that's pretty much it we ne we were never really a big thing in europe per se other than spain and scandinavia and the only explanation i've ever gotten for that is that um some uh british friend of mine said well we already had depeche mode why why would we need you <laughs> So, so that, um, but I will say in in South America, particularly, um, we're so much more popular than we are anywhere else in the world, including the, wow. I, even though the even though the U.S. is by far our biggest market, by far, yeah. you know, because it's a giant country and it has a, a huge number of giant cities and radio stations and blah blah blah. But when we play live there's nothing like South America because I mean, not so much anymore. We're a legacy act everywhere we go. But back in the day in South America, we were like a mini Beatles kind of oh. situation. And we never experienced that anywhere else. Now you do a lot with the information society from, you know, playing synthesizers, producing songwriting. You kind of alluded to this a moment ago, but is the band more of a collaborative effort when it comes to new material? Uh, actually the it hasn't really changed um throughout the the whole history of the band the band is is um primarily a collaboration between myself and kurt larson um i write most of the material he writes some of the material and and everything that i do write is with him in mind uh to perform it um james cassidy is is an integral uh and absolutely crucial part of our live presentation but he doesn't really take part in in the studio aspect of things um so you know ironically it the that the the 
process of writing and producing the music hasn't really changed since 84. Really. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's, been, it's the same as it ever was. <laughs> to quote, to quote a great man. There you go. Uh, total change of subject on a question, but you did the soundtrack for the cult classic Orgasmo. How was that working with Trey Parker and Matt Stone? Yeah, that's an interesting story. Um, I, uh, so we 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 were working with a drummer uh, alive who we also went to high school with, um, and he at one point said to me, oh, I got a message from this guy who lives in Denver now, who we also went to high school with, and and he needs to put you in touch with someone. And I was like, yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. This is this kind of thing happened all the time back then. Everyone wanted to talk to us, you know? And so, but but then it turned out, it was like, okay, th- there's these kids in, in, in a suburb of Denver, and they've written a screenplay and they they want music that sounds like information society uh, in their in their movie. I want to say this was what, like 96, 1996. And so I happened to be going to um, uh, the Sundance Film Festival that year because I was trying to drum up some work as a composer, you know, in, in multimedia, as we used to call it. Um, and so I was there and I they, they finally got a hold of me and they were also there. And at that point, Trey and Matt Stone had had uh released their uh VHS cassette um short uh called uh, Spirit of Christmas, which was this cult thing that basically you know catapulted them to to attention in Hollywood. And so they were like top of the world at this point. And yet they were still just, you know, post-college dumbass kids. And so we met at a, at a hotel in, in Park City called the, the Tomahawk Lodge or something like that, which they thought was hilarious because it was so tacky. Um, and we talked to them and they were like, yeah, we, we got this deal to make this movie. And we want you to do the music because every music cue in the movie basically just says, and now some music that sounds like information society. So I was like, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, the band's not doing anything. I want to be a composer, you know, count me in. I'm, I'm on it. So then the next day we, we all drove in Trey Parker's uh, geo storm. I believe it was called was the name of his car it was a geo storm which was a terrible vehicle down the mountain from Park City into Salt Lake City where we all all had flights and this car was sliding it was it had snowed and and even though we put uh chains on the tires it didn't matter we were sliding sideways down the mountain the whole time and it was me and Trey Parker and Matt Stone and and Trey's girlfriend uh, and we barely made it to the airport alive. Literally, we had to be pulled out. We were pulled out of the ditch by a, a highway patrol car at one point. So, anyway, they 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 got the funding for this film, for this indie film called Orgasmo, and I did the music for it. And it was not my great, you know, it's not my greatest work for sure. Uh, but it also, uh, in my defense, I was paid almost nothing for it. So there's that, but the, the best, uh, 
anecdote that came from that period of time is that I went to, I was, I was still living in Minneapolis at this time, but I was flying to LA to, to, to work on this with them. And at one point I was with them in their um, office in Westwood and they had already gotten the deal for South Park at that point for the first season of South Park. And I remember pulling Trey aside at one point and I said, I don't know what you're doing with your career because you've got a feature film deal here and you're wasting your time on a cartoon on cable network. Like what's that about? Like, where are your priorities, man? Yeah. Who would have known? Huh? Yeah, it just goes to show, do not take business advice from me. Oh, that's, that's the bottom line. Do not, do not take business advice. Uh, Paul, one of our listeners found out we're going to be interviewing you and they had a question they wanted us to ask on their behalf. The question was, have you considered playing any other forms of music such as punk or jazz? That's an interesting question. I love jazz music. As a matter of fact, jazz is probably the main thing I listen to in my in my personal life, jazz and classical. Um, and in terms of punk, I will submit to you, sir, <laughs> that Information Society started out as a punk band. Ah. Despite the fact that we didn't use guitars or bass or drum kit, we were punk in all the ways that mattered. We were all about the do-it-yourself aesthetic. We were all about confronting uh, the audience. We were all about breaking the fourth wall. And and um, everything that makes punk punk in a classical sense, not in a Green Day sense, but in a you know, 1980s sense, um, was what we wanted to do and what we did. We eventually morphed into a pop band after that because we wanted to make some money. Uh, but um, so I, I guess the short answer to the question is, I think we actually were a punk band for a couple of years. Actually, are there any bands that inspired you to get into music? Oh, there's, you know, a list of uh, hundreds. But, you know, I've already mentioned Devo. I've already mentioned Kraftwerk, uh, DAF. B-52s, like a, a lot of very uh, uh, obscure bands like Our Daughter's Wedding, oh. uh, Los Microwaves. Um, Where are they now, right? <laughs> yeah, Gary Newman, uh, obviously, you know, a lot of the, you know, so-called new romantics from that period, uh, Suicide, SPK, you know, the, 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 the list, the residents. The the list could go on. I mean, I guess probably I should make a a list for for my own reference of what our you know what our influences were because they were huge and many, like a lot of the New York no wave bands, oh. like Richard Hell and the Voidites, James Chance and the Blacks, uh, Television, hey, you know, a lot of those bands were those were the people that we worshipped. You know, oh, yeah. we were in high school and we were watching. This was before the era of MTV. So the only place we had to see music videos was to go to the to the art museum on Friday nights. And they would show music videos in the at the art museum. Well, and I think this is probably the final question. You've kind of already answered it, which makes me very sad. Uh, <laughs> are we are we going to see Information Society out on the road? I tell you here where we are, you would have a packed hall. And where are you, by the way? Well, it's so funny that you mentioned it. We're in Salt Lake City. Oh, so well, you know, 
traditionally SLC has been a, has been a good market for us. Well, I mean, I'm still pushing honestly for for a sort of you know farewell tour that that's down on the grassroots level in a bus playing clubs and playing cities that you know the the problem with with a band like us at this point is we're we're like we're like we're old and we're spoiled and we're not hungry for money none of us are hungry for money and so we only you know offers come in and we're like no way we're not going to do that we're not going to fly to cincinnati you know for whatever x thousand dollars so we end up playing horrible places like the Dominican Republic, which is where we're playing next one, which I don't even like. Who wants to be in that kind of humid beach kind of situation? I don't like it. But um, but I, I still have some some talking to with the other guys to to get you know. So you know, keep hope alive. I'm looking for. I'm looking at next summer. You know, oh, my fingers are crossed. Rock clubs gnarly sound systems, small stages. I think it could be fantastic. Oh yeah. No, I completely agree. Paul, I want to thank you on behalf of, uh, or I want to thank you for your time coming on to the new wave music podcast. It's been a joy to sit down and talk, talk to you and find out some interesting facts. Like T-Bone said, I'm holding out hope that we may see you on a club tour, farewell <laughs> tour next year. How can, how can our listeners keep up with you guys? What's the best way to stay in contact, find out if, the, if there is a tour that's going to happen or new music? We have a website, but uh, but the Facebook page is updated more often. So, you know, uh, there, there's a relatively active uh, Facebook page for the band um, that if there were, were any uh, live shows, for instance, or whatever's happening is basically reflected on that Facebook page. We can't thank you enough, Paul. We hope, you, we hope the best for you and success in the future. Thanks very much. It's been a great pleasure to be here. Mm-hmm.